Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. And on Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues where appropriate. On this week's Current Account, I want to take a closer look at Japan and its markets and economy. And to help me do that, I am delighted to welcome Nathan Sheets, who's the Global Chief Economist at Citi, to help break down some of these key topics in the Japanese economy. Besides his role at Citi, Nathan has been a senior official at both the Federal Reserve here in the United States, as well as the U.S. Treasury Department. So, Nathan, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Clyde. All right. So we want to talk about Japan's economy, but I actually think that kind of getting a little context is going to be helpful. So Japan's economy, obviously, after World War II was kind of seen as a miracle, but then it all stalled out in the 1990s. And since then, Japan's economy has grown at a very slow pace, some growth, but a pretty slow pace. And inflation became deflation. And it actually led to some pretty at that time considered to be on the edge monetary policy or things that we really have never seen before. But instead of me continuing to babble on, maybe I can ask you if you can kind of give us a little bit of context, what's happened in Japan over the last couple of decades that leads us to having a conversation today about where is their monetary policy and how are their financial markets? Japan's monetary policy over the last uh, 25 years has really been a trailblazer for what other central banks have faced and what other central banks have have had to do. I can tell you, I was at the Fed working with Bernanke through the global financial crisis. And as the Fed faced some of those challenges, it drew heavily on the BOJ's experience with exceptional monetary policy. Similarly, over this last uh, couple of decades, Japan has been dealing with the effects of aging demographics and what that means for the economy and a structural weakening in aggregate demand that that brings. And I think we're seeing some of those effects in other at least developed market countries, but perhaps increasingly maybe some emerging markets as well, including China and, and Korea. So. Japan has been very much a trailblazer and has been a uh, front runner in setting and determining kind of that mix of, of what central banks can do under extreme conditions. Now, let me also just add a personal note that this arc of Japanese monetary policy very much matches the arc of my career that uh, in the early stages in the late 90s, I was the Japan economist uh, for the Fed, and I remember thinking through some of these issues about how do you provide extraordinary stimulus. I have to tell you, I thought I had a lot of answers, but these kinds of answers are a lot clearer when they're happening to somebody else's economy than when they're happening to yours. And uh, over the last 20 you know, years or so, as we've wrestled with these issues in the United States and other countries have had, I've gained increased appreciation for the BOJ and some of the solutions that it found. Okay. So as they were being experimental, they still were not able to hit one of the key issues, which is how do you get 
inflation to be on the positive side. So obviously, over the last couple of years, actually the last year, I should say, inflation concerns have been probably the biggest issue in the United States and in Europe and a number of countries around the world. And of course, inflation is a terrible, horrible thing for so many different types of people. But Japan wasn't suffering from that problem. Japan was suffering from deflation. Now, you're a real economist as opposed to me. Deflation is, in some respects, worse than inflation. And Japan couldn't seem to get out of the trap of deflation. So then, about 10 years ago, Kuroda-san was put in charge of the Bank of Japan. And his main goal, and he was going to do everything he possibly could to get inflation up to a positive number. How did he do during that time frame? And maybe some of the things that he tried to do to help spur some inflation. So uh, Governor Kuroda's policies have been uh, exceptionally uh, aggressive, really, really quite extraordinary. And let me make a, a couple of points along those lines that in discussing what Kuroda did, I think it's helpful to compare him to his predecessor, Shirakawa. Governor Shirakawa was a longtime uh, BOJ staffer, and I think he approached the issue of deflation from a very analytical kind of standpoint. And he looked at it and he said, what's going on in the Japanese economy is a, a structural weakness of aggregate demand, probably flowing from aging demographics. There's really only so much that monetary policy can do to address that kind of a structural weakening. Yeah, we can pursue low rates, but if we go much beyond that, we're likely to introduce uh, distortions and challenges in the economy and create unintended consequences that are more severe than even some of those deflationary pressures that they were facing, which, as you described, were, were challenging. Governor Kuroda came to this uh, with a much different perspective. Kuroda's view was, you know, if a certain policy hasn't worked, let's amp it up further. And if that doesn't work, let's amp it up again. Early in Kuroda's tenure, they significantly raised asset purchases. And as a result of that, the BOJ's balance sheet has uh, expanded dramatically. And just as a point of reference, at present, the BOJ's balance sheet is equal to 130% of Japanese GDP. And the BOJ owns roughly 50% of the government bond market in Japan. So Kuroda, he had his foot on the accelerator when he found that the, that the asset purchases weren't doing it. Then he went to a yield curve control policy where they pegged a rate out the curve to provide still additional stimulus and continued uh, vigorously with that. Now, I think the, the big question is, well, how successful was he? I think it's fair to say that under Kuroda, that we saw kind of trend inflation in Japan move from something around zero or maybe just slightly negative up to around 1%. And then during the pandemic and then this inflationary backlash that we've seen afterwards, and maybe now we think the trend inflation in Japan is up to one and a half. It's still not at the BOJ's 2% target. 
It's not at the target that Kuroda wanted, but I do think it's discreetly better than it was before him. Whether ultimately Sharikawa was right and there are going to be some structural challenges as a result of these policies that he pursued, I think is something that we'll see in coming years. But he certainly has pursued policies that are vigorous by any historical metric. Excellent. All right. That's very, very helpful. All right. So for everybody in the audience to know, Kurodasan stepped down in April after 10 years as the central bank governor for the Bank of Japan. And he's been replaced by a man named Kazuo Ueda, who started a five-year term in April, May-ish. And he's just kind of gone through his first big meetings at the Bank of Japan. What is your impression about Ueda-san? Or do you see him making many big changes from what Kuroda was doing or kind of trying to follow a similar playbook or maybe just stalling, waiting a little bit to kind of get his feet under him and figure out his plan? I'm not sure which one you think. My feeling is that Ueda is a strong choice to lead the BOJ. And I think that that is the general impression in markets. He comes with a very rich background, decades as an academic studying monetary policy. 20 or 25 years ago, he was on the BOJ's policy board. In addition, he stayed in touch with the BOJ in intervening years. Many of his students are senior staffers at the BOJ. Given all of that, he's, he's in touch with it. But it's been a couple of decades since he's been on the inside. So the way I like to describe him is an inside outsider. He kind of knows how the BOJ works and operates. He appreciates their thinking and perspectives, but he's also bringing a fresh perspective and a very sophisticated background to the evaluation of, of BOJ policy. That then brings us to your question, well, You know, what is what is UEDA going to do? What are the challenges he faces? And I think broadly speaking, the challenge for UEDA is to put the path of Japanese monetary policy on a more sustainable track, that the pace of asset purchases, the pace of accumulation of JGBs, if they continue it for another three or five years, you know, the BOJ is going to end up owning, you know easily the the vast majority of the JGB market. But by the same token, he also needs to continue with policies that are vigorous and stimulative because they're still not back up to that 2% target. They can't say that they've convincingly achieved their price objectives. So what he's going to need to do is kind of a sophisticated balancing act where I think we'll see him seek to slow asset purchases, Uh, Rates in Japan, policy rates have been slightly negative, maybe lose them back up to zero over time. He's probably going to need to think about ways to exit the yield curve control policy. But while doing all of that, do it in a context of we're keeping policy stimulative and what we're doing is shifting to a stance that's going to allow us to be stimulative for longer than we would have been otherwise. So on the one hand, make policy more sustainable, which is certain dimensions going to look like pulling back, but at the same time, stay convincingly committed to the 2% inflation objective. Excellent. All right. So now 
we're going to get a little, hopefully not too technical, but think about a concept you've mentioned a couple of times. And again, you did note that they were experimental. So one experiment they've done is this thing called yield curve control. So a few things on that. First is, can you kind of explain what it really is? Um, and uh, and some of the pros and cons. Uh, the biggest con that I ever hear about is that it's kind of become the Hotel California monetary policy. Now, for those who do not know the Eagle song, there's a famous line in it that says, you can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave. So the idea is you can't exit it in a way that makes sense. So that's the issue. Can they exit it? But first, kind of what is yield curve control? And then I guess the pros and cons, including this Hotel California problem. Yield curve control, uh, I think, is you have a central bank that's attempting to stimulate its economy. As part of that stimulus, it takes short-term policy rates, which is what central banks typically target. It takes that those policy rates to zero or maybe even slightly negative. Once they have implemented that policy, they look around and say, we have not yet fully achieved the conditions in the economy that we want. We haven't stabilized economic activity and growth, inflation's too low, and we need to provide more stimulus. What else can we do? And we've seen in many central banks, well, you can engage in asset purchases, you can engage in forward guidance where you make commitments about policy that we're going to keep rates low for a long time, or we're going to keep rates low until inflation rises or unemployment falls. But I would say yield curve control is a strong form of asset purchases in communication. It is a commitment to not only have short-term rates low, but it establishes a target for a longer term rate in the economy. In the BOJ's case, they said originally that what they were going to do is keep their 10-year JGB yield at zero plus or minus 25 basis points. So they put an envelope and essentially put a target on a rate out the yield curve. What this does, if it works, and I think it works reasonably well for the BOJ, is that it helps guide market expectations about future policy. And ultimately, what QE is trying to do in any event in forward guidance is to bring down longer-term rates to help stimulate spending and the economy more broadly. And so it's doing all of those things directly. So I think the theory and support of YCC as to why a central bank might be interested in pursuing it and its potential benefits are, are pretty clear. It is a powerful form of unconventional policy. But as you said, the problem with YCC is when actually, I guess I can point to two problems. One is the exit, and two is essentially you lose control of your balance sheet. Why do you lose control of your balance sheet? Is you have to buy as many bonds as the markets want to sell to you in order to maintain that, that band or that target on the longer term rate. And very specifically here, in 2010, when the Fed was considering QE2, it also did analysis on policies that would have been very similar to YCC and ultimately pulled away from them and went with QE2, just more asset purchases, because they were worried that they'd lose control of their balance sheet. 
And they were also very worried about this issue of how do you exit from YCC? Because once you've set that ban, if the markets think you're going to be widening the band or abolishing the band, then anyone who holds those 10-year securities has an incentive, has a reason to give them to the central bank and let the central bank buy them from them for a, for a higher price. And that is exactly where the BOJ is now. They're thinking maybe it's time to exit YCC. And they're thinking through various approaches that may allow them to do that. I think Governor Kuroda, and we could go into more detail on this, the Governor Kuroda showed them uh, a path before he left as to how they might exit, but there's still a lot of work to do. Okay. So it's going to be a tough one for them. Now, let me take a slight step back and look at a broader markets issue in Japan, which is the fact that there's the central bank has a, a fairly different policy than other major central banks around the world has also probably stimulated or led to the fall of the yen. So the yen has fallen against the dollar a fair amount this year and against the euro by a much, much bigger amount. And part of that is because they're seen as being still having a fairly stimulative, loose monetary policy, whereas the other major central banks are tightening their monetary policy. At the same time, Japan's equity markets are now hitting, I don't know, 30, 33-year highs. I can't remember the latest one I saw, but they've been going up. So I was in Japan recently, and this was a lot of the conversation. This was about a month ago, which was, you know, they continue to go up. <laughs> and there's also like, why are they continuing to go up <laughs> while the yen is falling? So do, how do you think about those issues? I mean, some of that I'm sure falls on the central bank, but I, you know, there's more to an economy than a central bank. So how are you seeing this kind of broader market issues? Well, I think the uh, stances of monetary policy, Japan versus many other uh, central banks around the world, uh, and the fact that we've had continued stimulus in Japan is part of the explanation for the strength of Japanese equities, as, as you suggested. Maybe a related point is the BOJ has broadly been comfortable with a weak yen in that that has helped raise inflation levels and that you get higher inflation as the exchange rate depreciates. So it's also helped them on the inflation front. But in thinking specifically about the equities, I think the monetary policy is probably part of the story. But I'd say another important argument is that Japan's cyclical position relative to at least many other developed market economies is pretty favorable. Japan, like many other Asian countries, was in a lockdown as a result of COVID longer than was the case in the United States, the Uruguay, and some other countries. And Japan is now in a place this year where it's reopening with vigor and its economy is likely to grow. The level of GDP is still climbing back to kind of a mid-2019 pre-COVID kind of level. And it seems to me and it seems to investors that there's still some room to run there. And I don't see any appreciable, unlike the United States or the euro area, I don't see any appreciable recession risk in Japan. And that's certainly playing into it. Now, I think there are probably two other structural factors that are deeper and more longer lasting that we're seeing as well. 
One is that there are a number of underlying reforms that are going on in the in the Japanese economy. I would say corporate governance reforms are something that's been ongoing in order to uh, strengthen the governance of firms and give investors increased rights and leverage. And that's attractive. I think that there are also issues trying to address the, the demographics that are in play and so forth. So those structural developments really all designed to make the economy more efficient, especially in the face of aging demographics. And then another structural issue that's more recent is that we're hearing from investors that the political slash geopolitical climate is causing some institutional investors to feel that they want to lighten up a bit on some of their China exposures. As they reallocate their portfolios, seems that Japan and some other EMs, particularly emerging markets in, in Asia, are benefiting from that portfolio uh, reallocation. So that's another a narrative that's in play in the markets. They're all supporting Japanese uh, equities. Well, that was a terrific answer there, Nathan. So let me just say thank you so much for providing us your expertise and knowledge on this topic. There are a lot of complications, but I think you've tried to make it as easy to understand as possible. So I really just appreciate you taking the time, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Clay. Really enjoyed it. All the best to you as well. Now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from today's podcast with Nathan Sheets. Two things I'm looking forward to in my one sports fact. So my three main takeaways from talking to Nathan are, first, Japan's monetary policy over, frankly, the last 20 years, particularly the last 10 years, has been experimental and highly aggressive, trying to basically stop the problem of deflation and try to actually help stimulate the economy. Next, the new central bank governor, Oeda, is, as Nathan put it, He's an inside outsider. He brings a fresh perspective, but he has a big challenge, which is how to make sure that the monetary policy is more sustainable over time, while at the same time continuing to be stimulative for the overall economy. And third, and I thought this was an interesting point at the end, there are some positive cyclical points going on in Japan's economy. But there's also some positive structural ones that probably weren't actually recognized in the past, which is how to make a more efficient economy. And also, can Japan, which is a steady rule of law country, be rewarded for that over time when there is great geopolitical uncertainty in so many other places? The two things that I'm looking forward to first is can the new central bank governor and his team find a way to exit whether it's walking or running out of the yield curve control policy that had been established by his predecessor and next can japan take advantage of this opportunity where they are receiving a lot more positive looks than has probably been the case for a while to continue to grow their economy in a way that's sustainable over time. And now my one sports fact. So one of the biggest sports in the world is about to come to its version of the Super Bowl, which is the Tour de France, which begins on Saturday, July 1st. 
Now, the Tour de France is the most famous and prestigious bicycle race in the world. For those who are unfamiliar with it, there are 21 stages of the Tour with only two rest days throughout the whole race. And the racers will race for 3,400 kilometers, which is about 2,100 miles over three weeks. As a reference point, this is like biking from San Diego, California, all the way to the Mississippi River in less than three weeks. And also, in the meantime, you have to do it through mountain climbing, time trials, which is basically a race, who can be the fastest, and using your teams, which as somebody who's looked at the Tour de France a little bit, I'd never really understood the whole team concept, but I know that it's really important. And there will be 22 teams and over 200 cyclists trying to do this journey. There are two probably leading contenders to win. The first is the defending champion from Denmark, Jonas Vingegaard, and the 2020 and 2021 champion from Slovenia, Tadej Pogogar. It turns out there have been 15 different countries who have won this race since the beginning, which is 1903. But instead of trying to think through who the winners will be, because it'll be a slog over the next few weeks, there was a point about the jerseys that they wear, which is kind of interesting. For those who are not familiar with bike racing, and I'm not that familiar, there are a few interesting jerseys that they wear for their accomplishments. The most important by far is the yellow jersey. The yellow jersey, which I think most people, even if you barely know anything about bicycle racing, know about the yellow jersey, is because that person is winning the race. And the most important thing is to have the yellow jersey on the last day. The next jersey that I find to be most interesting just because of its colors is the polka dot jersey. The polka dot jersey is for what is called the king of the mountains. Now, they race through some mountains. Mountains are clearly where bicyclists thrive and also fall. And I don't mean literally, although sometimes that happens, unfortunately, but fall as in they just can't make it. The king of the mountain is the person who achieves the most mountain points during those parts of the Tour de France. The point system is complicated, but it's also a very cool looking jersey. Then there's the green jersey, which is basically the sprinter's jersey, which I think is fairly obvious. That's just somebody who accumulates the most points in each stage by winning intermediate sprints. And then the last jersey is the white jersey, which is given to the best young rider. So you have to be under the age of 26 years old. Interestingly, Tadej Pogacar, who I've mentioned, has won this race twice, and he's not even 24 years old. So he's clearly been the white and the yellow jersey winners in the past. Well, I wish them all luck. When you watch it on television, you cannot understand how could they do this for three weeks straight, but they do it. And that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. I would like to thank Nathan Sheets again for joining us. He's the Global Chief Economist for City. As an internal note, we're going to take a week off next week because of the 4th of July holiday. But as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. And all of our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening and goodbye.